This is a Rooster Teeth production. September 25th, 1978. Pacific Southwest Airlines Flight 182, a Boeing 727 with 135 people on board, is approaching San Diego after an early morning flight from Sacramento, then on to Los Angeles. The weather is clear with plenty of visibility on this late summer Southern California morning. The three-person crew of this trijet are minutes away from landing when air traffic control alerts them to a Cessna 172 approximately three miles away in front of them. The captain tells air traffic control that the traffic is in sight and is instructed to maintain visual separation. 80 seconds later, the 727 collides with the Cessna, sending both planes careening out of control to the ground below into the North Park neighborhood of San Diego. The crash kills everyone on board both planes, destroys 22 homes, kills seven people on the ground, and injures nine others. How did these planes collide if the PSA captain had the Cessna in sight? Could air traffic control have done more to intervene? What prevents this kind of thing from happening today? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hi. It's been a crazy day. <laughs> it's been a busy morning. I'm, 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 uh, we've, we've had a lot going on. We had the power go out at our studio, and then we were recording a big part of a finale for campaign for Tales from Stinky Dragon podcast. We've got all kinds of things going yeah. on, but most importantly, right now, we have Black Box Down going on. Yeah. and uh, That yeah. sounds crazy for the, the intro. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's un, unbelievable. Have you been to San Diego, Chris? Mm, yeah, once. So I assume you flew in yeah. to the airport. A little bit of trivia I learned in researching this, um, this incident. The San Diego airport is the busiest single runway airport in the United States. What? Single runway? Yeah, they only have one runway. I didn't, I, I've that, flown in there many times. Sounds... I had no idea they only had one runway. Yeah. Even here in Austin, we've got two. Yeah. And it's a busy airspace yeah. you know, down there in Southern California. And that's where they slam dunk landing, right? Well, that was San Francisco. So, oh, okay. <laughs> the other, the other San uh, yeah. city in California. And this, of course, is um, a different time we're talking about here, 1978. I had to, you know, I've been to, to San Diego a few times. I, I, you know, tried to map out where these planes ultimately crashed and where they hit the ground. I don't think I've ever been in that neighborhood, but it's really close to a, a freeway. It's close to Balboa Park, a little east of Balboa Park, if you're familiar with San Diego. You know, we've talked about crashes where they, you know, they'll crash into houses or, you know, into parts of a city. I, I don't think we've ever covered one that hit this many homes. I know. That's, it's... it's Really crazy. Yeah, it's a lot that of you pe- said that people. Number. And it's it was really early in the morning. I you know if I remember right, it was like eight or not. It was I guess around nine in the morning if I remember right. So you know people were probably still home, just starting yeah. their day, and you know they didn't do anything. They're just in their house getting ready for the day. And you know seven people died and nine people were injured as a result of the the planes coming down into the neighborhood. That's wild. And we'll probably if you follow us on Black Box Down Pod. I'm sure we'll have uh, additional images and things. This is it's actually really haunting. There was a, I don't, I don't know what it was for, but there was a press conference happening nearby where these planes collided. Uh-huh. So there were a bunch of reporters and news stations there covering the press conference. So as a result, even though this is 1978, there's photos uh, oh. and there's video footage of the aftermath. Like one of the photographers who was there for the newspaper managed to take two photos of the, of the, the PSA passenger plane as it was on fire and wow. falling to the ground. It's crazy that, there are photos of this, considering, you know, the time frame, yeah. how difficult it, you know, how nowadays I think we take photos and video for granted. And the fact that there are actual photos of this is, is unbelievable to me. It, it, it's funny because, you know, we talk about a lot of times how 
eyewitness accounts aren't always the most accurate because people don't know what they're looking at necessarily. And, you know, they kind of interject their own opinions as far as what happened. So you can't always rely on them. I was watching an interview with one of the NTSB investigators who worked on this, this mm-hmm. crash, worked on this accident. And uh, it was a woman by the name of Wally Funk, very accomplished aviator. Uh, you should definitely read up on her if that's your thing. I think she's led a very interesting, very prolific life uh, in aviation. But anyway, she was talking about how, you know, she was dispatched out there and she was, you know, began interviewing the eyewitnesses and that she said in her experience, talking to the eyewitnesses, it was, you could get the most reliable information from children, from people under 17, because they were a lot more matter of fact about what oh, they saw. And they, like, did, they didn't let, like, they didn't have the life experience to color what they saw or to change what they saw. It was very more like, this is what I saw. And, you know, she said that, you know, there were a lot of kids out there uh, at, at the time. Yeah, that she, that's, that, that's, and talking to the kids, she was able to get what she felt was more reliable information out that of is, them. That's like... It seems counterintuitive. It does, but also when you, when you break it down, you're like, okay, yeah, they're not like trying to like interpret. Right. They're, it's just facts. What did I see? This is what I saw. Yeah. Yeah, and, and this, was the, this was actually the deadliest U.S. commercial aviation disaster until American Airlines Flight 191 in Chicago, which is an incident we covered. That's the one where... The left engine came off the wing as they were taking off from Chicago and the plane crashed. So this was the deadliest accident for, for almost a year until, until that other one. So I, I did a little bit of reading. I was not very familiar with Pacific Southwest Airlines itself. Huh. It was a, a regional U.S. airline. It was headquartered in San Diego. and It operated from 1949 to, I believe it was 1988. It was the first large discount airline in the United States. And it called itself the world's friendliest airline. And they painted a smile on the nose of all of their airplanes. They called them the, uh, the PSA Grinning Birds. Oh. I mean, that's a cool, like... I don't know. Yeah, it kind of made the planes look like they had a face. Like they, they painted the, the, the radome, like the very tip of the nose black. So it looked like a kind of like a, like a, like almost <laughs> yeah. like an animal's like black nose. And the windows look like eyes and it's got like a big smile under it. They were very customer service oriented. In fact, Southwest Airlines, the, the founder of Southwest Airlines took a lot of cues from Pacific Southwest when they started Southwest Airlines and tried to mimic what they were doing when they started Southwest Airlines. So even though PSA is gone, you see a lot of that has held over. A lot of that culture almost got transferred to Southwest Airlines. And Southwest Airlines is, is known for those things. You know, yeah. The PSA started all of that. Like the flight attendants telling jokes and the pilots mm-hmm. having like a laid back attitude. Like I think, you know, one of the pilots, you know, who was involved with starting the airline uh, would always wear a Hawaiian shirt whenever he was flying. Oh, okay. And like he kind of tried to, to keep things real casual and fun for, you know, the, the employees and for the passengers. And, and are they, uh, was Southwest still using the Pacific Southwest Airlines computers over the Christmas? <laughs> yeah, that's a very, a very relevant <laughs> joke, a very topical. No, I don't think so. But uh, that's a, that, yeah, yeah, the Southwest has not had some, uh, some good headlines here recently. So specifically, this was an early morning. This is like a commuter flight, right? Like mm-hmm. they started in Sacramento, flew down to LA, continuing yeah. on to San Diego. These are probably people who are, you know, and this, this was an early morning flight. These are people who are going down to work or have business, taking a quick business yeah. trip for the day. You Just know, like, got to go down to LA for, or San Diego for the day. Going to go back home. Run this back and forth several times right. a day. Right, exactly. It's a very commuter focused route. How do you feel about early morning flights? Uh, I avoid them if I can. Yeah, uh, because same. what I end up doing is I just like don't really sleep much because I, I, yeah, yeah. I'm, I get nervous about missing my flight. So then I'll wake up earlier than I need to. And I'm sure you do that thing too. You're like, if I fall asleep right now, I'll get six hours of sleep. <laughs> and then like, 
okay, now just fall asleep, now get five. Yeah, yeah. I will say the advantage to early morning flights is that you're less likely to run into operational delays because as the day goes on, delays cascade. Mm. So when you're starting the day early on a flight, chances are the plane will be there. It's not like, oh, the plane was delayed earlier on another flight and now it's delayed coming in here. But I don't know, that's neither here nor there. I'm not a big fan of early morning flights, but sometimes you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, I like midday. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that. So this plane, this, uh, this flight, Flight 182, was captained by James Jim McFerrin. His nickname was Jim. And first officer, Robert Bob Fox. Jim and Bob, very, uh, <laughs> very uh, affable names. Very like... Uh, yeah. I feel, they feel like very easygoing names. Which, you know, with a smiling plane. The grinning bird, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, and of course, they had a flight engineer, older plane, uh, Martin J. Wan. Uh, and they had four flight attendants. And, you know, like most of the time, the flight from Sacramento to L.A. was uneventful. And when they were on approach to San Diego, they were making a visual approach to runway 27 at San Diego airport's called Lindbergh Field. So if you hear me say Lindbergh Field, it's San Diego airport. So visual approach to runway 27, that means they got to, we've talked about visual approaches before. They have to keep the runway in sight. And if they're landing on runway 27, they're going to be landing to the west. because 270 degrees. And they'd been advised of the location of the Cessna by the approach controller. And the flight crew told the approach controller they had the traffic in sight. And they were instructed to maintain visual separation from the Cessna and to contact Lindbergh Tower. And that just means that they have to keep an eye on that Cessna uh-huh. and make sure they maintain adequate separation from it. Very common. When just, you're operating under visual rules, this happens all the time. Just maintain visual separation. Mm-hmm. There's rules about how close you can get and how uh-huh. far away you have to stay. I don't know what the rules were at the time specific for this. Typically, you know, they want to stay at least at the very minimum a thousand feet away. But you keep an eye on it and... Like, that's an emergency if you're, if you're yeah, that close. Yeah. But yeah, you, you just keep an eye on it, and you're like, okay, we're going to be turning this way. They're over there. We're fine. So presumably all good. Yeah, they, they can see it. They told the approach control they could see it. They're told to maintain visual separation and to contact the tower. Again, that's common when you're coming in. You might switch frequencies a few times. What does Cessna say? No, th- this, is, this is all from the, from the, Cessna the can't. Pacific. They did. Okay. I'll talk about the Cessna here in a minute. So they transfer over. They contact the tower. They tell the tower they're on their downwind leg, which means they're flying parallel to the runway in the opposite direction they're going to land from. Mm-hmm. And they were again advised of the Cessna's position. The flight crew at this point did not have the Cessna in sight. Oh. Because they thought at this point they had just passed it and it was off to their right and they continued their approach. Off to the right, they thought. Yes. So they thought they'd like... <laughs> yeah, because uh, uh, you know, this, this plane, the 727, is going to move much faster than the Cessna. So the Cessna, it's a 172 Skyhawk. This is... when If, if you ask anybody to like... Imagine like a single propeller general aviation plane. They're probably going to picture the 172 Skyhawk. Okay. It's a high wing plane. It's got one propeller. In theory, you can seat four people. Realistically, not, not so much. <laughs> it's the kind of plane pilots train on. It's the kind of plane I fly that I've been flying when I've taken my pilot lessons. It was operated by Gibbs Flight Center and it departed from Montgomery Field, which is a different airport, a little uh-huh. northeast of Lindbergh Field. And it was flown by two licensed pilots. Okay. One was Martin Casey Jr., who was 32 years old. He possessed single engine, multi-engine, and instrument flight ratings, as well as a commercial certificate and an instrument flight instructor certificate. So he's a flight instructor. Was he instructing the other pilot? Correct. Like one of, one of his certifications or something? Correct. And this flight instructor, by the way, had 5,137 hours. So very experienced pilot. The other pilot who was sitting in the left seat, his name was David Boswell. He was 35 years old, and he was a U.S. Marine Corps sergeant. He actually, he was also a licensed pilot. He had single engine 
uh, and multi-engine ratings and a commercial certificate. So he was a legal pilot. He, he was yeah. beyond private pilot. He had a commercial certificate as well. He had flown 407 hours at the time of the accident. So he was not like a fresh, he was, even though he was a student, it's not like he was a brand new pilot. Yeah, he, he, he had his pilot's license and to the point where it was commercials. Correct. That's, I mean, you, we've talked about your training mm-hmm. and you're in, in terms like, in, I guess, like uh, how many? So I have about 150 hours right now. Okay. So to get a commercial certificate, I don't know about back then. Nowadays, to get a commercial certificate, you need a minimum of 250 hours. Okay. Uh, so he had flown that, obviously. He didn't have his instrument rating. So he's, this instrument rating, he's, he's flying at this time right now. He's, take, he's taking lessons to get the instrument rating. And that's the rating that allows you to fly. Without like, looking? In, in clouds, without looking outside. You're correct. So lots of times when you uh-huh. are taking instrument rating lessons, you have either a hood or foggles on to restrict your view so you can only see the instruments inside the plane and you can't see outside. Uh-huh. Important, important yeah. asterisk here. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, but there's two pilots and one of them didn't have blinders on, presumably. Correct. Assuming, Cor- we don't, I mean, correct. The instructor is, operates as a safety pilot. Yeah. So he can see outside and you know, make sure everything's okay. So yeah, Boswell was wearing that hood, limiting his field of vision to just inside. It looks like a big sun visor with like panels to block peripheral vision. Very normal in IFR training. Yeah, like with the blast shield. Yeah, exactly. Like in Star Wars, like the blast shield. No tried with the blast shield. (laughs) The Cessna was under the control of the San Diego approach control, and it was climbing on a northeast heading. The Lindbergh Tower local controller had cleared the Cessna pilot to maintain VFR conditions, so visual flight rule conditions, Mm -hmm. and to contact San Diego approach control. The approach controller told him that he was in radar contact and instructed him to maintain VFR conditions at or below 3,500 feet and to fly a heading of 070 degrees. So this is all very common instructions. Okay. The Cessna pilot acknowledged and repeated the controller's instructions. All they have to do is stay under 3,500 and fly a heading of 070 degrees, which is like a east-northeast heading. Directly east would be 90, you know, and north would be 0 or 360. So... Most, mostly east, but a little, a little north, east-northeast. And the other plane's heading 270 degrees west? That's where they're landing, but they're on the downwind. So they're flying the opposite direction, which means they're flying 090. Okay. So on the downwind, you fly parallel to the runway, but in the opposite direction of what yeah. you're landing. So they're going to be flying east on a 090. So all that being said, the Cessna pilots, for reasons unknown, did not maintain that east-northeast heading of 070. So after completing a practice instrument approach, they didn't notify ATC of their course change to 090. So even though they were instructed to maintain 070 heading, they drifted a bit and they ended up going 090. So... And which direction was the PSA flight going? Well, they were going 90. Yep, exactly the same heading. So now they're going the exact same heading. Correct. But would that mean, though, that they were like flying the same direction? Yes. It was not a head-on collision. Oh. Uh, I guess I, I, I can clarify. I, I, since I already said they, they collided, I can say that now. The PSA flight, they were both heading in the same direction, and the PSA flight overtook the Cessna. Oh. It's like a rear-ending, like a rear-ending a car. Re- it rear-ended the Cessna. Okay. Yeah, that's why I was asking when, when I when I about 20, 270, I was like, oh, now they're... Yeah, no, no, no. It's, it was not a head-on. It was uh, overtaking. Because again, that PSA flight, the 727, is going to be much faster than that Cessna. Mm-hmm. So I don't, you know, there's, there's, there's no black box in a Cessna. We don't know what the pilots were saying. We don't know what was going on with their instruments. So we don't know. Sometimes, you know, when someone's 
taking IFR training, it's possible that, you know, they're so overwhelmed looking at all the instruments that their heading may slip a little bit, but that's uh-huh. why the safety pilot's there to be like, yeah. or the instructor to be like, hey, you can maintain your heading. You know, if, if I, if when I'm taking my, I'm taking IFR training right now, if, when I'm taking training, if I go off by like five or 10 degrees, you know, my instructor's like slapping me, like, hey, hey, <laughs> you know, hey, take a look at your heading, you know, get, get back on your heading. It's, it's very important you, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. that you maintain the heading you're supposed to get, that you're supposed to be on. It's, it's part of the training. Especially when landing in, in near airports. Right, near airports when there's lots of traffic. It's very important to maintain that because ATC puts you on these headings anticipating you follow it so that they can move traffic around appropriately. Yeah. But there is, I don't know that this happened in this case, but there is a phenomenon I do want to very briefly cover here. Uh-huh. So in, your, in a plane like a Cessna 172, you have a compass that sits on like the dashboard, right? Okay. The compass though is prone to... How can I say this? It's prone to errors. Because if you think about it, a compass is like a ball floating in a liquid. And when you're in a plane and you're turning or you're banking, it's not exactly stable. Like when you're on the ground and you look at a compass, you know yeah. it's definitely this direction, it's definitely that direction. When you're not touching the ground and you're like float, you're flying in the air and, and you like let's say you turn north, the compass may lead a little bit or it may lag a little bit. But it still works. It still works. So you don't use the compass for your headings necessarily. There's a separate instrument called like a heading indicator, or uh-huh. sometimes it'll be referred to as an HSI, and that's gyroscopic based. So you okay. use that to maintain your heading. It's one of the instruments. It's like a, a round instrument that's on the, it's in the paddle. Okay, and that's more reliable than right, the compass. Because the compass's backup. Well, the compass, it will always be correct. The problem with the heading indicator is oh. that it's prone to what they call gyroscopic precession. And over time, like all the vibration and all the shaking will make it drift a little bit. So what you're supposed to do is when you're in level unaccelerated flight, every 10 to 15 minutes, you just compare the compass to the heading indicator and you may have to adjust the heading indicator a little bit. Oh. So over time, it could drift. And if you're not constantly checking it to make sure it's correct with the compass, it might read a little off. I don't know that's what happened here, but I'm just saying it's that's... plausible that the heading indicator was a little off. The heading indicator might have been a little off and then... Also, the compass could possibly be. A it could little, be, yeah, if they're if you're like climbing that, or accelerating, uh-huh. which, they, which they were, they were. Yeah, it's it's not entirely. You can't verify it. So it's just it's just when you're piloting a small Cessna, yeah. like it's just another thing you got to keep in the back of your head. Yeah, and uh, you know, with me specifically, anytime I know I'm coming into the Austin airport or I'm approaching an airport, like I verify that that heading indicator over and over because I know. Because incidents like this, like you want your heading indicator to be as correct as possible to comply with any ATC instructions. Yeah, that all makes sense. Yeah. So I'm just trying to give a little more background about how all of that stuff works. Again, the report doesn't say anything about that. But it's something. (laughs) It's it's just something when I was going through this, I was thinking about my own experience. Like, oh, man, sometimes the heading indicator gets a little off and Mm. you don't know. Some planes... It gets more off than others. <laughs> like every, every, every system has its own little quirks. But I do believe this Cessna was actually relatively new at the time. Not that that excuses anything. Anyway, like I said uh, a little earlier in the intro, this collision, you know, obviously occurred in midair. It was about three miles northeast of Lindbergh Field. And, you know, it fell to the ground in the San Diego neighborhood of North Park. And, you know, both occupants of the Cessna were killed. Everyone on the Boeing 727 was killed. And seven people on the ground were also killed, and nine people were injured. 22 dwellings were damaged or destroyed. And this explosion and fire created a cloud that could be seen for miles. If you talk to people who lived in San Diego at this time, like, everyone remembers this. It's like, 
because they you could see it for so far, like everywhere in the city. And I forget what the number was. It was like I want to say it was like sixty or seventy percent of all the firefighters in San Diego had to show up to try to control this fire and, and, and put it out because of the fuel from the plane, or it also catching fire, like all the houses, all the hit, houses yeah, and, all the and trees and things that right, it, just like it, everything it collided with along the way, just created this huge fire. You know, I, since we talked about it, the fact that they were like kind of bumped into each other, going the sort of the same direction. I wonder if that made the debris spread out a further, mm -hmm. like a, a greater distance than it would have if they just collided head on. Because in a head on collision, they, you know, the, you would, the forces you stop, stop each other right. and then they kind of fall more downward versus this where they kind of like do and like falling apart. Yeah. Well, the, the, I'll, I'll read the specifics here in a little bit, but the, the Cessna pretty much fell apart and fell straight down from that uh -huh. point. Uh, Flight 182, you know, suffered some substantial damage to the right wing uh, and began, you know, banking and entered a nose down attitude. It was pretty much uncontrollable at that point. So they, you know, they didn't, it's not like they fell straight down. The plane still did circle for a bit. Oh, uh, before trying, trying to regain, regain control. And yeah, you know, the, the pilots were trying to, uh -huh. um, it probably was impossible because of the amount of damage that was sustained, but you know, they're still going to try. Yeah. So the flight data recorder for the PSA flight, you know, the outer case was intact. It did have some mechanical damage to the right side section. So what, so, so it hit, sorry if you said this or you're going to, they hit whenever the, um, the main big plane was descending, right? So, Correct. And they went down to 3,500? Well, they were, and, and, and they were still descending at this point. Yeah. So they, they collided. I forget the exact altitude they collided at. Because the the Cessna was told to stay below thirty five hundred. Correct. So so yeah, they they the collision did happen below three thousand five hundred. Uh, I want to off the top of my head, I want to say it was it occurred around two thousand two hundred or two thousand four hundred somewhere around there. Okay. So it was it was already really low. So it's not yeah. like the PSA flight was in the air for a long time, but it did. It's not like it, I just wanted to yeah. clarify. It didn't immediately go straight down. It did continue to to fly for a little bit. Anyway, this FDR outer case was intact. It had been subjected to fire and extreme heat. An examination of the pertinent portion of metal foil recording. You remember, this was the old style black box. They had that metal foil recording. It showed that its surface was covered completely with heavy crushed deposits. So they had to do repeated chemical and ultrasonic cleanings to remove those deposits to permit the entire record of altitude, airspeed, and magnetic heading to be seen. However, the traces containing the minute marks, vertical acceleration, and radio transmission indications were not visible over the last four minutes of flight. So that's just all to say they were able to get a lot of the data off of the flight data recorder, but some of it was unreadable. The last four minutes. The last four minutes of vertical acceleration, radio transmission indications. So they still did have altitude, indicated airspeed, and magnetic heading. So they still had okay. a good amount of information. But this did create a little bit of a problem because the minute marks were not available for timing, the foil movement precisely. So, and then the lack of radio transmission made like syncing the FDR with the CVR a little more difficult, like synchronizing yeah. the cockpit voice recorder with the flight data recorder. So it just, it, it was a little inconvenient. Like they had to work at it to, yeah. to get everything to, to be read. The cockpit voice recorder was damaged severely. It had been subjected to intense heat. However, they were able to get all of the data off of it without too much trouble. Uh, and they transcribed, or in the report, the last five minutes are transcribed and I was able to read through all of that. This episode of Black Box Down is brought to you by HelloFresh. Remember those New Year's goals you promised yourself you'd stick to? Well, HelloFresh is here to help you 
Eat better by delivering fresh ingredients and easy recipes right to your door, taking the hassle out of dinner time. Get HelloFresh and skip that extra trip to the grocery store and the long checkout lines. Spend more time doing the things you love with delicious chef-crafted recipes delivered right to your doorstep. The day I get my HelloFresh delivery is one of my favorite days of the week. Uh, it's a big present. I get to run and unpack and put everything away, look over the recipes I selected, try to figure out which one I'm going to eat that night. It's really, really good. Um, you know, maybe, uh, I don't know about you, maybe you could listen to a quality podcast while you're preparing your meal. Uh, and then when you're done, you get a delicious treat that you made. Uh, feels really satisfying and it's delicious. So go to HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown65. Use code BlackBoxDown65 for 65% off plus free shipping. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown65, code BlackBoxDown65 for 65% off plus free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. This episode sponsored by BetterHelp. When things are going well at work or in my personal life, I feel like it bleeds over to other parts of my life too. Uh, I find myself feeling more confident in day-to-day situations, more at ease being myself, and overall just feeling like the best possible version of myself. But sometimes life gets you bogged down. You may feel overwhelmed or like you're not really showing up in the way that you want to. Luckily, working with a therapist can help you get closer to the best version of you. Because when you feel empowered, you're more prepared to take on everything life throws at you. Therapy can be a great tool for finding coping skills for anxiety or depression, setting boundaries in your life, or working through a particularly challenging time. If you think of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, flexible, affordable, and it's entirely online. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge, if that's something you want. So if you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash blackboxdown today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash blackboxdown. Kick off spring with new gear that's built to last. Our friends at Shady Rays have you covered from the sun to the slopes with premium polarized shades, customizable snow goggles, and much more. Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company that offers a world-class product that's just as good as any expensive pair I've ever worn. Plus, Shady Rays offers the most insane protection of all eyewear. Every pair of sunglasses is backed by lost and broken replacements. So if you lose or break your pair, even on day one, they'll send you a brand new pair, no questions asked. Shady Rays also provides 10 meals to fight hunger in America with every order. They've donated over 20 million meals to date. So you can look good in your gear and feel good by making an impact. Uh, I personally, I, I like my Shady Rays. Easy to just throw in my bag. I've got like a little uh, compartment for uh, sunglasses. Take them out if it's uh, sunny when I'm you know, out uh, riding a bike or uh, walking around. Uh, it's great. And uh, they're absolutely fantastic. They look good. They feel good. I mean, no complaints at all here. They're absolutely incredible. If you don't love them, you can exchange them for a new pair or return them for free within 30 days. There's no risk when you shop with Shady Rays. Their team always has your back. So just for our listeners, Shady Rays is giving out their best deal of the new year. Go to ShadyRace.com, use code BLACKBOXDOWN for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Try for yourself the shades rated five stars by over 200,000 people. So, you know, obviously they're going to go back and kind of like create a timeline for everything that happened. Uh-huh. So at about 8.16 in the morning, the Cessna, which was operated by Gibbs Flight Center, departed Montgomery Field, California on an instrument training flight. So Montgomery Field is a little northeast of what you would consider the San Diego Airport Lindbergh Field. Since the flight was going to be constructed in visual conditions, you know, there was no flight plan filed and none was required because it's visual. But even though it's visual, but he's training for non-visual? Correct. So what the way that normally works is the pilot who's training will wear the 
the visor to simulate instrument training, even though it's visual. And the safety pilot or the instructor will, you know, keep an eye on all the visual stuff. And the instructor will simulate the radio calls, like what the mm. controller would be saying if oh, okay. it was instrument. So it's like you have a conversation with the tower, but you don't click the button. You're just saying <laughs> it to, to the guy sitting next to you. And like we're saying here, the flight instructor sat in the right seat and another certificated pilot who was receiving instrument training occupied the left seat. Very common for instrument training. So the Cessna left Montgomery Field and proceeded to Lindbergh Field, where two practice ILS approaches to runway 09 were flown. And the reason they had to do that is there were no other instrument approaches in San Diego County at the time. So in order to practice an instrument approach, they had to go to Lindbergh Field. Huh. So like here in Austin, even though I'm taking the training, uh-huh. lots of times I'll fly out. There's, you can do it lots of places. I would, I'll fly out to Taylor. I'll fly to Georgetown or San Marcos. Like there's lots of other smaller airports in the area where you can do instrument approaches. But, but this is the only one. And at, at the time, Lindbergh Field was the only place that had an instrument approach. So they had to go there to practice. And at the time, the reported wind was calm. Runway 27 was the active runway at Lindbergh, but they flew their practice approaches into runway 9. Shouldn't be a big deal. They're talking to the tower. At about 8.57, the Cessna ended a second approach and began a climb out to the northeast. At 8.59, the Lindbergh Tower local controller cleared the Cessna pilot to maintain VFR conditions and contact San Diego approach control. So they're leaving Lindbergh Field, probably heading back to Montgomery. So they're climbing and leaving the area. At 8.59 and 50 seconds, a Cessna pilot contacted San Diego Approach Control, stated he was at 1,500 feet and northeast bound. The approach controller told him he was in radar contact and instructed him to maintain VFR conditions at or below 3,500, fly heading of 070. Cessna pilot acknowledged and repeated the controller's instruction. All very common. Mm-hmm. The Pacific Southwest Airlines flight you know, was a regularly scheduled passenger flight between Sacramento and San Diego with a stop in LA on the way. They departed Los Angeles at 8.34 on an IFR flight plan with 128 passengers and a crew of seven on board. And the first officer was flying the aircraft at the time. Company personnel familiar with the pilot's voices identified the captain as the person conducting almost all air-to-ground communications. This is very common. Uh-huh. Whoever's flying normally just flies and then the other pilot will handle all the communication. So okay. yeah, they've divided their responsibilities. The cockpit voice recorder established the fact that there was a, a deadheading company pilot who was also sitting in the cockpit as well. So he was just, just like... an extra. Yeah, he, was, he wasn't there officially. He was, he was commuting for work, most likely. Mm. Remember, San Diego was their headquarters, so he was probably flying down to fly another plane later in the day. I don't know that for a fact. I'm just guessing that. Speculating, I should say. At 8.53 and 19 seconds, Flight 182 reported to the San Diego Approach Control Tower at 11,000 feet, and they were cleared to descend to 7,000 feet. At 8.57... So four minutes later, Flight 182 reported it was leaving 9,500 feet for 7,000 feet, and they had the runway in sight. Mm-hmm. Approach controller cleared the flight for a visual approach on runway 27, and they acknowledge and repeat the approach clearance. So coming in, you know, they, they're going to be landing uh, on runway 27, so they're going to be landing to the west. Shortly after that, at 8.59 and 28 seconds, the approach controller advised Flight 182 there was traffic at 12 o'clock, one mile northbound. And five seconds later, the flight answered, we're looking. So when you're told, you know, typically when a pilot's told, you know, traffic at whatever, they'll look for it and they'll say either traffic in sight or looking for that traffic. Yeah. Right. Okay. So looking at 12, and they're referring to the Cessna. So this is actually a separate plane. Oh. So then, then 11 seconds later, the approach controller advised flight 182 additional traffic's 12 o'clock, three miles just north of the field, northeast bound, a Cessna 172 climbing VFR. This is them. This is That's, the Cessna. Yeah. Out of 1,400. And according to the cockpit voice recorder at 8.59 and 50 seconds, the co-pilot responded, 
okay, we've got that other 12. So he's, and this is when he saw it. So in my mind, this is an ambiguous statement. That, you know, you're right. Because <laughs> the other 12 could be the first one or this the second. The new one. Yeah. Right. But he says, we've got that other 12. In my mind, that sounds like they're talking about the other plane. But it's open to interpretation. Yeah. I'll say because that. Because when when maybe it's because I was like jumping at it. But to me, it sounded like the Cessna at first. Right. We've got that other 12. So we've got the other 12. Makes me think they're talking about the third, the third plane. But who knows? At 9 o'clock and 15 seconds, about 15 seconds after instructing the Cessna pilot to maintain VFR at a below 3,500 feet, the approach controller advised Flight 182, traffic's at 12 o'clock, 3 miles out of 1,700. And then at 9 o'clock and 21 seconds, the first officer said, got him. And then one second later, the captain informed the controller, traffic in sight. So this is when they see the Cessna that they end up colliding with. Okay. So I think the previous statement was about some other plane. Now, here... They, they see, the well, as far as we know, they, they see the Cessna that they ultimately collide with. Then a few seconds later, at 9 o'clock and 23 seconds, the approach controller cleared Flight 182 to maintain visual separation, contact Lindbergh Tower. And then a few seconds later, they answer, okay. And three seconds later, the approach controller advised the Cessna pilot there was traffic at 6 o'clock, 2 miles eastbound, PSA jet inbound to Lindbergh, out of 3,200, has you in sight. The Cessna pilot acknowledged 1-1 Golf Roger. This is this is a nightmare for me, by the way. If, if I'm flying a Cessna and I'm told there's, there's a commercial plane at my six o'clock, that's directly behind, behind you. you. It's, it's hard to look back in a plane like this. In a, in a Cessna, <laughs> it's hard to turn around. Like in a car, you just like you pop over your shoulder and see. It's hard to see behind you in a Cessna. Uh-huh. Passenger plane at my six o'clock, I'm not happy about that. And so in that situation, though, you would just make sure you follow the instructions. Follow your, yeah, do exactly you what you've been to told. Right. Right? Right. You get that, and there's probably no way you can see it. But they did say the other traffic says they have you in sight. So I'm like, okay, well at least they see me, you know, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> at nine o'clock and thirty four seconds, flight one eighty two reported to Lindbergh Tower. They were on the downwind leg for landing, uh, so they're flying presumably on about a zero nine zero heading. Because if they're on the downwind, they're flying parallel to the runway in the opposite direction of what they're going to land. The tower acknowledged the transmission and informed flight one eighty two there was traffic twelve o'clock one mile Cessna. So they've closed some distance. And that Cessna is now, previously was three miles away. Now it's one mile away. Did they still see him? This is when they don't see him? So at nine o'clock and 41 seconds, the first officer calls for five degrees of flaps. And the captain asks, is that the one we're looking at? The first officer answered, yeah, but I don't see him now. So they've, they lost sight of the Cessna. Mm-hmm. According to the cockpit voice recorder, uh, nine o'clock and 44 seconds, flight 182 told the local controller, okay, we had it there a minute ago. And six seconds later, I think he's passed off to our right. The local controller acknowledges transmission. So oh. th- this is a point of contention right here. Uh-huh. According to the air traffic control transcript, at nine o'clock and 50 seconds, the transmission was, think he's passing off to our right. And the local controller testified he heard, he's passing off to our right. What they said, though, on the copy of voice recorder was, I think he's passed off to our right. I think he's passed. So it's a difference of, Past or passing. If you say passing, that's a lot more active. Like we see him, and we're, and he, we're passing. Like we're we're in the process of right. passing if versus pa- they're behind he, us. I think he's passed. Is like we we think he's behind us, we, but we can't see. Uh huh. So there's some ambiguity here. Then in in the local recordings for the air traffic control, there's like static that's timed just at that oh, second no. syllable. So that's why it's like that's why he heard passing even though 
the pilots actually said passed. But either way, well, I guess... W- One sounds more active. Yeah, but I guess he's passing. She, the, the, the cock, they heard what? Passing? The controller heard, yeah, passing. In which case, they would have him in sight. Right. And also so be able to visually see that they're not going to hit him. Correct. Mm. So it's just one of those things, that one of those little things that adds up. Right. It's yeah, not like this yeah. is what caused it, but it's just another. It's one of the things. One that, of the compounding things. Yeah. Stupid static. <laughs> so they, they use data from the flight data recorder, cockpit voice recorder, and the ATC transcripts. And they, you know, they compared it with the Cessna 172 performance data. And they even used some seismological data to reconstruct the probable ground tracks of the two flights and to figure out the time that they impacted the ground. Okay. You know, Southern California yeah. has a lot of seismic activity, so they've got a lot of seismological sensors. Oh. So they're able to oh. see when the planes hit the ground based on the, the, shape, the readings, yeah, yeah the, 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 the ground impacts. Real quick, going back, after the, we think he's passed off to our right, did air traffic say anything? What did they say? The, the, he just, the local control just acknowledged the transmission. Like, okay. So uh, I don't know that, he, that they said okay. All it said was acknowledge the transmission. So that, that's all I have in front of me. The ground tracks showed that Flight 182 overflew the Mission Bay Vortex, so it's like a, a navigation aid. Mm-hmm. They turned left to a heading of about 090 and maintained that heading until the collision. And again, remember, the Cessna was also on a 090, 090. heading. They should have been 070. If they had gone 070, they would have been further north, and the PSA plane would have missed them. Because they would have been slightly 20 degrees turned to the left. Yeah. It's still pretty close, it, though. It's still it, it, it depends on the timing, but it could be close, but... You know, also, I, I think they only need to maintain like a thousand feet of separation. Yeah, I guess it's like this had to have been the the most perfect bad timing. Yeah, because for them to cross paths exactly at that moment at the exact altitude, right? Yeah, there's there's a thing I hear a lot of pilots say this. It, it, you're right. Like it, the the timing has to be so precise for two planes to collide. Lots of pilots going down. Lots of pilots will say sky big, plane small. Like it's yeah. really improbable to have two planes be in the exact same space at the exact same time because you have three dimension of movement. Yeah. Like you're talking about going down, like one's descending, one's climbing, then they both happen to be at the same altitude in the same space at the same time. And at the time of the collision, the altitude was at about 2,600 feet. I know you had asked that earlier, so there it is. The track showed Flight 182 flew about 4.2 miles south of Montgomery Field. That's where the Cessna was based out of. And the ground track showed the Cessna turned to the northeast just west of Lindbergh Field and maintained that approximate heading for about one minute. Then the Cessna turned right to a heading of about 090 and maintained that approximate heading until the collision. The copy voice recorder showed that Flight 182's flight crew continued to discuss the location of the traffic. At 9 o'clock and 52 seconds, the captain said he was right over there a minute ago. The first officer said, yeah. 9.52? 9 o'clock and 52 seconds. Nine o'clock. Okay, fifty-two yeah. seconds. Yeah, that was okay. Yeah, no, no. I was no. like, ten minutes passed. <laughs> then at nine o one and eleven seconds, after the captain told the local controller how far they were going to extend their downwind leg, the first officer asked, "Are we clear of that Cessna?" The flight engineer said, "Supposed to be." The captain said, "I guess," and the oh. four jump seat occupant said, "I hope." Oh my God, that's not the confirmation you want. That's not no. Then 10 seconds later, at 9.01 and 21 seconds, the captain said, oh yeah, before we turned downwind, I saw him about 1 o'clock, probably behind us now. So they, they, they lost sight of him and just don't know at this point. And he's right below them. He's right below, yeah, right in front of them and right below right them. Right in front of them, below them, 
and and they're gonna lower. They're descending and he's climbing almost like on top. Yeah, at nine oh one and thirty one seconds, first officer called gear down. And then seven seconds later, the first officer said, "There's one underneath." He's looking at the gear indicators. And then one second later, he said, "I was looking at that inbound there." Uh huh. Approach control on the ground picked up an automated conflict alert 19 seconds before the collision, but did not relay this information Whoa. to the aircraft because, according to the approach coordinator, such alerts were commonplace even when no actual conflict existed. So they got these alerts all the time, so they didn't say anything. Oh, but then why have them? Right, exactly. <laughs> why have the alert if it's just going to give you false, false alarms? The NTSB stated, based on all information available to him, he decided the crew of Flight 182 were complying with their visual separation clearance. They were accomplishing an overtake maneuver with the separation parameters of the conflict alert computer and that, therefore, no conflict existed. So the controller, even though he's getting the alert, he's been told Flight 182 sees the traffic and they're going to do what they need to do to avoid it. Mm, and in his brain, he heard, we're passing. Right. So they, he maintained sight of them the whole time. Right. Because Flight 182 never told the controller they lost sight of the Cessna. So as far as the approach controller knows, they still see it. And they're, they're doing their job and keeping that separation. Other than when he said, we think. I think that was just internal. Oh. I don't think he ever broadcast that. Let me check. I thought it was... Oh, oh yeah, you're right. I think he's passed off to our right. Instead of think he's passing off to our right. The yep. think is a, an important word. Because the, the passing and passed, that, that's... The, but the think... Yeah, you, you don't want to hear that. You, you, you want to know definitively, yes or no. Yeah. Uh, at 9.01 and 47 seconds, the approach controller advised the Cessna pilot of traffic in your vicinity. A PSA jet has you in sight. He's descending for Lindbergh. And this transmission was not acknowledged. The approach controller did not inform Lindbergh Tower of the conflict alert involving Flight 182 and the Cessna because he believed that 182's flight crew had the Cessna in sight. And this was the exact moment when the collision occurred, 9.01 oh. and 47 seconds. That's why... No one responded. There was no response because that's when they hit. They hit. The two planes collided. According to the report, the Cessna may have been a difficult visual target for the, the jet's pilots uh -huh. because it was below them and it blended in with the multicolored houses of the residential area that was beneath oh. them. The Cessna's fuselage was yellow and most of the houses were a yellowish color. So it's kind of like, almost like a weird camouflage. Yeah. And the apparent motion of the Cessna as viewed from the Boeing was minimized because they were going on a, in the same direction yeah. so it's like our eyes can pick up movement pretty well but since they were going in the same direction there was no real like it didn't appear to yeah. really be moving very much how fast were each plane i don't know that for a fact i'm gonna guess a cessna climbing out 2600 feet hitting for 3500 it's probably doing 80 knots 85 knots something like that it's not a tremendous amount of speed i don't know what the approach speed of a 727 is but the cessna probably was not going very fast and another reason that it may have been difficult to see the cessna was because of the phenomenon of foreshortening you know it's like how when you look at like let's say you have an object and you look at it from the side like it's really like uh, let's say you have a fork uh -huh. and you look at it from the side and it's like that fork's really wide and big but if you turn it at an angle so that it's like pointing at you or away from you, it becomes more narrow yeah. and shorter and smaller. That's foreshortening. So it's like, since the Cessna was not... Oh, and it was climbing. No, no, because it was maintaining below 3,500, but was it, it still was, climbing? It was climbing up to 3,500. So it's like, it's at, and it's, it, it's not crossing their path. It's going along the same path. So it looks more narrow than it would otherwise. Yeah. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. I think so. Forks. Forks. Or it's, it's like when in, in animation, when you like 
animation's a flat 2D surface. Mm -hmm. And they want when they want to show like someone's like reaching forward, they'll make like the arm longer like yeah. as it reaches into the yeah, foreground. That, that's like foreshortening. It's like it, it gets shorter, but it gets longer. Your brain perceives that. Mm. Anyway, so since the Cessna was turned, it didn't have as much of a target for them to see, is what it boils down to. However, that same report in another section said that the white surface of the Cessna's wing could have presented a relatively bright target in the morning sunlight. So it's possible that the sun should have been reflecting off of it and maybe it would have, that should have helped them identify it. Probably weren't looking below them. <sighs> maybe Because not. they thought it was behind them. I well, don't know. For a while, they thought it was in front of them because they said three miles in front, one mile, yeah. and then they thought they were passing it. So they should have been able to see it for a while there. Uh, actually, somewhere in a little bit, I'm going to talk about I have a breakdown of when they should have been able to see it. We'll get to that in here in a bit. According to the witnesses, both aircraft were proceeding in an easterly direction before the collision. Flight 182 was descending and overtaking the Cessna, which was climbing in a wing-level attitude. Just before the impact, Flight 182 banked to the right slightly, and the Cessna pitched nose up and collided with the right wing of Flight 182. Uh, the Cessna broke up immediately and exploded, and segments of fragmented wreckage fell from the right wing and empennage of Flight 182. Empennage, of course, is the tail. Flight 182 began a shallow right descending turn, leaving a trail of vapor-like substance from the right wing. A bright orange fire erupted in the vicinity of the right wing and increased in intensity as the aircraft descended. The aircraft remained in a right turn, and both the bank and pitch angle increased during the descent to about 50 degrees at impact. So, you know, that right wing's damaged. So the left, you know, the left wing's going to keep providing more lift, and so it's going to slowly begin banking to the right, and, you know, they're going to descend because they don't have as much lift, and that's why, you know, they enter that descending bank to the right and impact the ground. At 9.01.47 seconds, a crunching sound was recorded, and disturbances in the aircraft electrical system were detected on an unused radio channel in the cockpit voice recorder. That's why they're able to establish that 9.01 and 47 seconds was the time of collision. Mm. Electrical power to the recorder ended at 9.02 and 4 seconds, about two and a half seconds before the ground impact was recorded on the seismograph. Both aircraft were destroyed by the collision, in-flight and post-impact fires, and of course the impact. No survivors. Terrible, terrible tragedy all around. Flight 182 crashed at a heading of about 200 degrees in a right wing low nose down attitude. So they had been heading 90 degrees initially. 200 is, 180 would be south. So then 200 is like just a little west of south. So south, southwest. Okay. The Cessna 172 was damaged extensively by the collision and fell to the ground in several pieces. The 727's fuselage was damaged severely by ground impact. The fuselage structure from the cockpit to the air stair uh, compartment was collapsed, almost completely fragmented. Major portions consumed by ground fire. Like we said, there was a huge fire on the ground. The right wing was fragmented completely by ground impact. Almost all identifiable pieces of wing structure had been damaged by either in-flight or post-impact ground fire, or both. Measurement of the flap jack screws showed the flaps were in 15-degree position at impact. The empennage, which is the tail, horizontal and vertical stabilizers and rudder assembly were damaged severely by ground impact and fire. All three engines had separated from the aircraft and were found in the main wreckage area. All three, they, all three separated. Mm -hmm. This from probably from the force from the, of the impact. The, the, okay. And like we've talked about in previous episodes, they were in the main wreckage area, which means they didn't separate in, before in, the crash. Okay. You know, they landed, even though they separated from the frame, they were there with all the other parts. That's one of the ways they figure out mm. if something broke ahead of time. But even though this one's very clear cut, it was a collision. Except for parts of the Cessna's left wing and left wing fuel tank, major portions of the Cessna's wreckage fell to the ground about 3,500 feet northwest of the wreckage of the Boeing 727. So you were asking, like, mm -hmm. how spread out it would have occurred because it was overtaking. So all told, you know, the Cessna fell, 
in one spot, and then about 3,500 feet away was the, the wreckage of the 727. That's not that far. No, it's yeah. a little over half a mile. It's not, a, not yeah. super far at all. I mapped it. Uh, like I said, I was looking at Google Maps trying to figure out where everything was, and it's just like blocks away from each other. It's wow. not, not far away at all. Because they were so low right. at that point. Yeah, it, it's, it's not like they had very much time to do anything. Various pieces of the 727's right wing leading edge flap system were recovered in the Cessna wreckage, so presumably from the point of impact, like parts of the 727, mm -hmm. you know, get stuck in and fall down with the Cessna wreckage. The Cessna's left wing fuel tank was recovered at the 727's wreckage site. Half of the tank was missing and the remaining portion was crushed. So it probably ripped off the left wing of the Cessna and, you know, and just took, it, took with it. it with it. Yeah. Wow. So the big question, of course, all this boils down to is, was it possible for the pilots of the 727 to see the Cessna, right? Yeah. Since like, you, like you, you've mentioned, you know, the Cessna was a little low. You know, should they have been able to see over the nose of the plane and see down there and see the Cessna below them? So there was a cockpit visibility study mm -hmm. based on a series of photographs they took with a binocular camera mounted in the cockpit of a similar Boeing 727 mm -hmm. at the design eye reference point for the pilot and co-pilot seats and an arbitrary eye position for the observer seat. So there's specific locations that the seats are designed to be used in. So they don't know, you know exactly where the captain and first officer had their seat adjusted to. So they set the seats to a standard, mm. the standard position where you should be sitting so that you have the appropriate amount of view in front of you and instruments. Okay. So assuming they were sitting correctly. Correct. Exactly. And they took similar photographs from the inside of the Cessna 172, you know, mm -hmm. just, to, just to see as well. And then and on top of that, they also took additional photographs for the 727 with the camera mounted five inches forward of the normal design eye reference point to represent a pilot leaning forward five mm, inches to like search. Like if he's looking... Right, he's like, leaning forward to try to look over the yeah. nose. They, they call this position the alert position. Okay. So they're just trying to recreate what could they have seen? What does the, the view look like? And the photograph showed a panoramic view of the window configuration as seen by the crew member as he rotates his head from one extreme side to the other i think nowadays it would probably use like computer simulations and like yeah, vr yeah, yeah, to yeah, like yeah. recreate all of that but this is like no we're going to set up binocular cameras and we're yeah. just, you know <laughs> we're going to put out graph paper and you know we're going to make a grid and that's what they did you know so they they made a a grid of horizontal and vertical lines in five degree increments and they wow. superimpose it over the photographs whoa what? <laughs> it's like wild to think about now it's like you would you would just simulate this or do it on a computer nowadays and then each photograph contains 17 points which represent the calculated location of the target aircraft on the viewing aircraft's windshield from 170 seconds to 10 seconds before the collision. So, so up until 10 seconds before it? They, it so was, they, they, they tried to calculate. That's just the time frame where they try to calculate okay. it. And then so now the answer to the question you're, you're getting at there. The photographs taken from the captain and first officer's seat showed that the Cessna would have been almost centered on their windshields from 170 to 90 seconds before the collision. And thereafter, it was positioned on the lower portion of the windshield just above the windshield wipers. Movement to the alert position elevated the position of the Cessna targets during the last 80 seconds slightly. The view from the observer's seat showed the Cessna target would have been hidden by the captain's head and shoulders and the aircraft structure. So that's essentially saying the Cessna would have been centered in their windshield for 80 seconds, between 170 and 90 seconds before impact. And that's, that's almost the whole time that there's plenty of time. That, well, because they got okay, they called out. We see the Cessna. They were alerted at the Cessna eight fifty nine. Then they said they found it at nine. Then at nine forty one, they lose it. 
Right. So at 9.01 and 47 seconds is impact time. So let's work back from that. So they, for 90 seconds before that, that would be 9 o'clock and 17 seconds. Mm-hmm. And then 80 seconds before that. So between 80 seconds before that leading up to 9 o'clock and 17 seconds, they should have been able to see it right center in their windshield. Yeah. And then after that, they could still see it. It was just lower right above their windshield wipers. But it was there. It was there. And then, you know, if they moved up to the alert position, they could still see it for the last 80 seconds slightly. So when they said, we think he's passed off to our right. It was not correct. Yeah, he was, he was still right straight in front of them. Mm-hmm. And again, like, like we talked about, the Cessna was kind of like this orangish yellow color, kind of looked like the houses below. Yeah. It was flying in the same direction, so it didn't have any really apparent movement. That's crazy. But they, the, the amount of time from seeing it to it disappearing was for them to lose it was like nothing. Yeah, it's real quick. They probably both looked down at their instruments to and, do something and then look back up and like, oh, where oh, did it go? Yeah. We don't know specifically what they were looking at, you know, where their head was positioned, but it should have been there. And I know it sounds improbable. Like, how can they not see it? How can they lose it? It's hard to see planes sometimes. Even when I'm flying sometimes, it'd be like, you know, there's a Boeing 737 three miles off to your right. I'm like, I don't see anything over there. Like, Okay, Cess- I'm, I'm looking. <laughs> Ancestors are way smaller. Yeah, way, way smaller. Yeah, it's like it makes me nervous sometimes. I'm like, I don't see it. Where is it? <laughs> but at least now, nowadays, we'll get to the nowadays yeah. part in a bit. But nowadays, it's much safer for a variety of reasons. And we're going to talk about that here in a bit. All right, so it's about time to like talk about the conclusions, right? What are the findings mm-hmm. uh, from all of this? And the first, first one I'm going to cover here is the Cessna was operating in an area where air traffic control was being exercised and its pilot was required to either comply with ATC instructions to maintain the 070 heading or to advise the controller if he was unable to do so. And the Cessna pilot failed to maintain the assigned yep. heading uh, contained in his ATC instruction. So. And we don't know what happened there. They were at 070. They ended up at 090. And ATC didn't correct them. But did they know? I guess they saw it on the radar? Yeah, ATC would have seen it. Remember the, the collision alert starts yeah. popping up? Yeah. So they could... Mm. Yeah, air traffic control should have in my mind, air traffic control should have been like, hey, what's going on Let's with go. the heading? And then also should have told the other plane. So it's like everyone messed up. There were lots of mess ups. Yeah, they, they all they messed were... up in the perfectly wrong way. Right. And the other plane, remember, never told anyone they couldn't see the Cessna they anymore. They couldn't see it, yeah. As far as air traffic control knew, the PSA pilots had saw the Cessna the whole time. They and kept then saying, they assumed they had passed it. When they hadn't. When they hadn't. Right. The cockpit visibility study shows that if the eyes of the Boeing 727 pilot was located at the aircraft's design eye reference point, the Cessna target would have been visible. Two separate air traffic control facilities were controlling traffic in the same airspace. We talked about that. Getting handed off from approach to tower. That's very common. That happens. You come in here to Austin, you'll talk to approach. Then you get handed off to final approach. Then you get handed off to the tower. So coming in to land in Austin, you can expect three different, you're going to talk to three <laughs> different people before you land. So that, that's not uncommon. The approach controller did not instruct Flight 182 to maintain 4,000 feet until clear of the Montgomery Field Airport traffic area in accordance with established procedures. So the approach controller should have told 182 to stay at above 4,000 feet. Because remember, he kept telling the Cessna to stay at or below 3,500. That's like the emergency. That should be like your emergency buffer there. Mm -hmm. But they didn't. They didn't tell Flight 182 to maintain 4,000 feet. Yeah. That's kind of a big one. Yeah. Especially... Since it was visible on the radar that they weren't in the right heading. Right. And just in general, there might be other traffic because I don't know what the airspace around San Diego was at the time. 
and I don't know how the laws have changed over the last almost 50 years, 45 years, right? Nowadays, if you're, let's say, if definitely if you're around San Diego, you have to have an active transponder so they can see you on radar. But at some smaller airports nowadays, you don't need to have that transponder. So you might not show up on radar. Mm. So that's why you have rules like this. Like, yeah, there might be traffic without a transponder going into Montgomery Field. So keep the lower altitudes clear in case there's a plane we don't see on our radar. There. Okay. It's, a, it's very complicated. I'm not going to get into all the detail of that, but just kind of a broad explanation of things that are possible to happen. The issuance and acceptance of the maintained visual separation clearance made the flight crew of 182 responsible for seeing and avoiding the Cessna. Ultimately, they were told to maintain visual separation. It was on them to see and avoid, and they lost sight of the Cessna and didn't tell anyone. Mm-hmm. So, oh, and that's the next one. The flight crew of Flight 182 lost sight of the Cessna <laughs> and did not clearly inform controller personnel of that fact. The tower local controller advised Flight 182 that a Cessna was at 12 o'clock, one mile. The flight crew comments to the local controller indicated to him that they had passed or were passing the Cessna. The approach controller received a conflict alert on Flight 182 and the Cessna at 9.01 and 28 seconds. The conflict warning alerts the controller to the possibility that under certain conditions, less than required separation may result if action is not or has not been taken to resolve the conflict. The approach controller took no action upon receipt of the conflict alert because he believed Flight 182 had the Cessna in sight and the conflict was resolved. This was 19 seconds before impact. And that was right after they lost visibility, right? Uh, they lost visibility. I don't remember. What was the time frame when they lost that visibility? Hard to keep track of the seconds. There's a lot of time. Yeah, well, it all happened so fast. Yeah. Normally, when we talk about this, it's like, I can, I remember the seconds. I remember the minutes. Well, we're talking about minutes. Yeah. Now it's like seconds. seconds that we're talking about yeah. all of this. I mean, there's so many things happen. We broke down 9 to 9.01. Yeah. Like, there's like eight bullet points. <laughs> yeah, I, so it was at 9.01 and 11 seconds that the pilots had the internal conversation. Are we clear that Cessna? Supposed to be, I guess, I hope, that whole exchange. Uh-huh. That was at 9.01 and 11 seconds. They, they, so they definitely don't see it at that point. And then just before that, at 9 o'clock and 41 seconds, that's when the first officer called for Thanks the flaps and asked, well, you know, is that the one we're looking at? Yeah, but I don't see him now. So that's when they, that's when they lose him. 9 o'clock and 41 seconds. That's what, 30 seconds. No, no, that's a little more than 30 seconds. That's about 47 seconds before this alert goes off and about a minute before the impact. The conflict alert procedures in effect at the time of the accident did not require the controller warn the pilots of the aircraft involved in the conflict situation. What do you mean? Like, that thing goes off, and it's the warning, conflict. What would they say in, in that situation? What should he have said? Uh, he would say, you know, like, PSA 182, climb, you know, expedite climb, maintain 4,000 feet or whatever, and, he, and Cessna, whatever their tail number was, uh, descend or maintain altitude like to try to get some Separate, vertical yeah. separation and make sure so, they go the right they, they go opposite directions right nowadays we have tcas yeah yeah that resolves that they didn't have tcas back then so the controller would have to have to act as tcas order one plane up and order one plane down tcas is the automated system that automatically tells both planes which direction to go exactly the tra- traffic collision avoidance system and we're, t- we're actually going to talk about tcas here <laughs> in just a bit uh, and then the last bullet point here is the boeing 727 was probably not controllable after the collision so there's really nothing they could have done. There was, so we talk about these every now and then. There, <laughs> and I'm, all, I always, I'm always hesitant to bring them up, but there was a dissenting conclusion found. It doesn't happen all the time, so I feel compelled to bring it up when it does happen. Where it's like some of the investigators disagree or have a slightly different opinion. Some of the times we've talked about this in the past, it's like, whoa, the dissenting opinion or the dissenting conclusions radically different 
or it's like in a, something entirely different than what we talked about. This dissenting conclusion is largely the same. There's only a few like minor mm. differences. Okay. I was, I was hesitant to bring it up, but since it does exist, I did, I did want to bring it up. The dissenting conclusion finds the failure of flight crew of flight 182 to maintain visual separation and to advise the controller when visual contact was lost and the air traffic control procedures in effect, which authorized the controllers to use visual separation procedures in a terminal air environment when the capability was available to provide either lateral or vertical radar separation to either aircraft, contributing to the accident were the failure of the air traffic control system to establish procedures for the most effective use of the conflict alert system at the San Diego Approach Control Facility, the failure of the controller to restrict PSA 182 to a 4,000 foot altitude until clear of the Montgomery Field Airport traffic area, the improper resolution by the controller of the conflict alert, the procedure whereby two separate air traffic control facilities were controlling traffic in the same airspace, the failure of the controller to advise PSA 182 of the direction of movement of the Cessna, the failure of the Cessna to maintain wow. assigned heading, the possible misidentification of the Cessna by PSA 182 due to the presence of a third unknown aircraft in the area. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's largely the same. It's a lot of, a lot of it's the same stuff we already talked about. Yeah. Well, I, I thought that was all. Yeah. So this was, this is the dissenting conclusion. Wait, what was different? Right. <laughs> I can't even, I could not even tell what was different. I think it, it boils down to very specific wording. Mm. Uh, like, a, you know, a lay person is going to read it and say it, it's, it's exactly the same. There's very minor differences. Uh, I think the big one here is that last one that I read. The possible misidentification of the Cessna by PSA-182 due to the presence of a third unknown aircraft in the area. Some of the people, some of the eyewitnesses who were interviewed on the ground, remember I mentioned Wally Funk earlier, some of the people she interviewed, uh, I forget the exact number. I want to say she said she interviewed either 27 or 29 eyewitnesses on the ground. Mm -hmm. 16 of them said there was a third aircraft in the area. So, and there was no, they went back through the radar data. There's no record of a third aircraft in the area. So not even the other one that the, we talked about that that's that's a different one so this is so an, this is another, another so this aircraft. is a fourth, a fourth, a fourth one possibly right so they refer to it as a third aircraft because that other one we talked about was like done resolved earlier okay so these eyewitnesses say that there was another aircraft in the area and that's really i think what this dissenting conclusion is about is maybe psa 182 saw this other plane and thought that was their traffic when in reality it was the cessna that they hit and they never saw the cessna at all right Again, there was no, they, they could not find any solid evidence to say there was another aircraft there, but 16 people on the ground said they saw it. Not everyone, but six, that's a lot of people. And they interviewed these people independently. independently. Right. It's not like one person heard another person say it. And were these people, I assume most of these people looked up when they heard the thing. Right. Uh, or some of them were already looking up, watching the planes. Like, I don't know, but anytime I hear a plane, I look up. <laughs> like, so maybe they heard the planes and they were looking up already and saw everything happen. Okay. So that, that, that's a lot of people. It's a lot of people, Chris. So how many of them were kids? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't know that exact number. Uh, and I think that's the big reason for this dissenting. Conclusion. Okay. Yeah. No. And that makes sense because when you, I didn't catch it at first because when you said because of the other plane mm -hmm. I, in my head, I went back to, oh yeah, the one that. Mm -mm. No, there was like another unknown aircraft. And like we said, not every aircraft. Again, I don't know what the airspace was like back then. I don't know what the rules were back then. But not every aircraft necessarily has to have a transponder. So not every aircraft may show up on radar. Not every aircraft may necessarily contact air traffic control and be participating in traffic separation. So it's possible there was a third aircraft there, but there's no record of it. And no one ever came forward and said, hey, I was flying in that area as well that morning. Mm. So 
I don't know. It's just a possibility. It maybe it happened. There's no way to confirm that. Okay. And you know, these reports like to be very fact-based. Like this is, we know yeah, for a fact, yeah. 100% this would happen. And this one's, this last point's a little speculative. So, you know, we, we mentioned TCAS a little, a little while ago. It's, and like Chris explained, it's a, an automated system that all, you know, passenger planes, uh, lots, of, lots of planes have nowadays that can detect when there's going to be a collision and can give traffic resolution to both planes. It'll tell one to climb, the other one to descend, or one to turn in one direction, the other one to turn also in a direction so that they don't collide. TCAS was put, this was one of the incidents that led to the development of TCAS. I can't say this one definitively by itself. But this is one of the incidents that caused the FAA to pursue the technology of TCAS. TCAS went into development in 1981, so three years after this accident. And, and, and when you say like development, it's like they think they knew how to... They, they're like, we, we need a system. We need a system. It's like, we need to figure this out. So uh, that's when they, they started it. And I think TCAS finally went into... It was certified in April 1986 and approved for operational assessment in early 1987. So it took them five or six years to build it and figure it out. Yeah. And then they started going out. And now, and we've talked about other incidents before where TCAS, you know, alerts yeah. planes. Yeah. And that's, that's a huge thing for making sure that planes don't, don't collide anymore. Yeah. It's still big, big sky, little plane. And now there's a system that takes care of that. Even mm-hmm. if it is, they do happen to end up on a path. Right. And, 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 and just for clarification, a Cessna of that size, even today, does not have Wouldn't to have, have TCAS. One. Right. Probably. Only aircraft certified to carry 19 or more passengers or a maximum takeoff weight of more than 12,600 pounds requires TCAS. So the Cessna, even today, does not require TCAS. But there is, we've talked about this system before. There's um, ADSB, which is like um, the ability for, to read transponders. So you and I went flying before. You know, I had that iPad uh, uh-huh. that I was using. That shows me all the traffic. It shows me all the ADSB data of planes in the area. So it's not TCAS. If there's going to be a collision, it doesn't tell me what to do, but it lets me know of all the planes around me, with all the planes around me with ADSB. Okay. So, so it's kind of like, it tells you where the planes are. So it's like secondhand ADSB. Secondhand or, TCAS, I think. TCAS. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, secondhand TCAS. Kind of. Yeah. It's like, hey, uh, and it'll alert me. It'll say, like, you know, if, there's, if you start getting close to a plane, my iPad will pop up and say, like, traffic 12 o'clock three miles okay. or whatever so it's like oh okay. that's cool yeah you know when you so it'll alert you it's not as robust as tcas but it is still really good to have and you have you not every plane is required to have adsb either but if you're flying around a busy airport you do have to have adsb okay so it's um you know these two systems together kind of help you be safer when you're in the air also uh you know like we like we said at the time the San Diego Lindbergh Airport, or Lindbergh Airport, Lindbergh Field was the only airport in San Diego County with an ILS. Right after this accident, the FAA installed systems at Montgomery Field, at McClellan Palomar Airport, as well as a localizer at Gillespie Field. That way, planes could practice instrument approaches at those That's other yeah. smaller airports and didn't have to come into San Diego anymore. Like, like I said, here in Austin, there's tons of small airports in the area where you can practice them. You don't have to go to Austin Bergstrom to do it because... Why would you do that? That's what, of course, all the, big, all the big planes are. You don't want to have another incident like this. You yeah. go out to a, a small airport that just has general aviation. Practice it there and then get better and then try the bigger airports. Right. And, you know, after this incident, there were changes. There were some technical changes made to the airspace around the Lindbergh Airport. They made it a class Bravo airspace, which I think we had an, an episode where we talked about the different classes yeah. of airspace. It, you know, Bravo is a very busy airport. So just it provides more robust control. It requires more technology. If you're flying into a Bravo, you need to have ADSB, you need to have a radio, you know, mm. it's, it's a lot more strict. And this accident also 
led to, I, we've talked about this before as well in previous episodes, this accident led to the sterile cockpit rules that planes have to adhere to, where if you're below 10,000 feet, the only thing pilots can talk about is things related to operating the airplane, oh. the landing or the takeoff. What else were they talking about? They were telling stories. Remember, there was that other pilot who was deadheading in the cockpit. Uh-huh. We didn't we didn't get into the transcript, but if you read the transcript for this uh-huh. crash, they're like telling stories or you know just chatting to each other about stuff that's going on. If there's a lot of unnecessary conversation happening, so yeah. which is distracting them from flying the plane and looking outside and seeing traffic and everything that yeah. needs to get done. Okay, yeah, because it's like I don't remember this. Yeah, we didn't we didn't get into all of those details, but now whenever pilots are below 10,000 feet, they have to, they can, the only things they're legally allowed to talk about, is like <laughs> it has to be directly related to the flight and directly related to what's happening right now. That way they stay alert mm-hmm. and um, focused on what's going on. And if you remember when we flew in the, the small Cessna, I even told you, hey, we're taking off and landing. <laughs> Don't talk to me unless you're pointing out traffic. I think that's, yeah, yeah. that's, that's the gist of, of what I told you at the time. Like we're taxi, take off and landing. We, I need to focus on what's going on here. And then once we're at cruising altitude, it's fine. Yeah, that's it. PSA 182, awful accident. But I mean, it led to some very fundamental changes that have made things way safer nowadays. Um, that yeah, it sounds we kinda like t- it. We like kind of take for granted. Yeah. And like I said, it's amazing in general that any photos of this accident exist. Uh, we'll post those on uh, social media if you give us a follow on Black Bo- at Black Box Down Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You, you can see that. I'll see if I can find some of the aerial photos of the neighborhood where it crashed. I'll see if I can find like a Google Maps and kind of like give you some reference as to where it happened in San Diego. But yeah, that's it. We're going to be, this is our, our, our final episode for this batch of episodes. We're <laughs> going to be back in two weeks with a supplemental episode. We got to take a little break to, you know, write up our next batch of episodes. Mm-hmm. So there's no new episode next week, but the week after that, we'll be back with a supplemental episode, hopefully to keep everyone entertained. We'll also have a first class episode for people who are Rooster Teeth first members or who uh, help support us by uh, going to the blackboxdownpod.com. Yeah, you can directly support this podcast for $2.99 a month. You get episodes early and ad-free. And we'll say thank you. And, and bonus <laughs> bonus content. Yeah. Like first class. All right. But well, that's it for this episode. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.